Welcome to Beer and a Movie, the podcast where we talk about two of the greatest art forms known to humanity, beer and movies, sometimes achieving outstanding pairings, and other times washing the terrible taste of failure from our mouths. I am one of your hosts, Dave Gurney, and I am here with Joe Hilliard, Carlos Cooper, and all three of us gather uh, weekly. You know this. Uh, we, we like to drink beer, watch movies. Um, we try to come up with some pairings. I, I got to say, we, we are stretching these days in terms of <laughs> pairing beers with movies because we, we don't have quite the access, maybe, and the, uh, the ability to kind of acquire things as easily as we would like. And also, um, you know, our selection of films, we're going back and, and not kind of looking at new themes and and whatnot. So I'm giving us excuses, but today we're going to open a beer that I don't know has any great connection to the film we're going to talk about, but I'm excited for the beer. Uh, Joe, you were the one who uh, very kindly procured this for us. I don't know if you'd like to say something about that beer that we're about to get going with. I wore my mask to the liquor store and I turned every can around to look at every single brewery to find two beers or as many beers as possible in our local liquor store to uh the, of states we've never been to before a success right. mississippi today is uh lazy magnolias pecan porter yes which i've seen many times i don't think i've ever had this before but i recognize the label as soon as we uh as soon as you dropped it off uh, yeah and that's of course the three of us are porch bombing one another with uh beer gifts so today we're visiting a state we've never had i don't know if we've ever had a pecan porter on the show before I'm eager, to, yeah. I'm eager to invade this isn't, Mississippi. This isn't, it's not a porter. It's a brown yeah. ale. You're oh, right. Oh, you're, I, I, sorry. I had poured mine prior to us starting, so I, I don't know where I got the word porter from. A brown ale. You're right. But, but pecan is all over the marketing. It's because yes. uh, Shiner does a candied pecan porter, mm -hmm. I think. is They do. And, the, and there's a famous one out of Austin, right? Is it? 512 pecan porter i think that oh, yeah, I think uh, so. is pretty popular up there but yeah no i could tell pouring this this is uh definitely i mean if anything it's almost a little more amber than a typical brown ale in terms of color yeah mm. it's a beautiful pour uh it's yeah. i mean you can tell that this is probably one of their flagship beers i don't know a lot about lazy magnolia but uh you can tell that they put a lot of pride into this just from how beautiful it is in the glass mm-hmm for sure. So we will, and I'm getting a little pecan in the nose. Definitely that kind of caramely uh, aroma that I expect out of a brown ale. So yeah, this should should be fun to sip on. Well, we we get around to talking about a film that I, for for our listeners who were listening last week, um, we kind of teed this up. You know, that it's it's one of our ongoing um, motifs, I guess. What, what what do we call it at this point? Themes in in the podcast uh, that that Carlos found every opportunity possible and even created some that are just so far-fetched that, you know, I'm, I'm sure it's, it's just stretched the limits of credulity for all of our listeners at various times. But the film that he keeps inserting into everything is Sahara. So finally, after months, after years, really, years. of us being teased with this film that I had never properly seen, Joe had never properly seen, um, that was constantly referenced. We decided we need to sit down. We need to we need to watch this thing. Yeah, I'll I'll kick it off if you don't mind. I well, found hold myself. <laughs> hold on, hold on, real uh -oh. quick before you start. Um, something that David just said reminded me that we did in fact recently pass our two year anniversary. I think right. Had we oh, mentioned that on the podcast? No. Oh, gonna let that one go. Well. That's At eighty something episodes, we can't be two years in yet. Well, we can because you know damn well that we were not weekly no. the entire time. Oh, like, you're not talking. Ah, I see what you're saying. You're yeah. talking about ah, I'm like from the you. from when the first episode came out. That was he's right. Like two years ago. Oh, cheers, boys! Cheers. Yes, cheers. Good for us. Uh, I found myself on a Hawaiian vacation and in a bookstore and looking for a beach book, and I picked up Clive Cussler's Inca Gold. And that set me on a little bit of a Clive Cussler jag, including the book Sahara. <laughs> including were they, were they all Dirk Pitt novels? They're I, all. I, it's Dirk Pitt is is was Clive Cussler has passed away not too long ago actually, uh, but he got to that level of authorship where you begin to bring in guest writers. So it's a Clive Cussler slash David Gurney book. 
You know, uh, James Patterson does that. You get to this certain level of success, and it's just a money grab. But uh, I got familiar with Dirk Pitt and Al Giordino and the love of the classic cars and the hot lady of this book. And so when Sahara came out and I saw it in the theater, I, oh, I, I was okay. I was no longer a major Clive Cussler fan. That was a short season. But I was very <laughs> curious to know how because I understood that there was a lot of like litigation that Clive Cussler only wanted it done correctly. And. Of the books I remember, uh, Steve Zahn certainly and Matthew McConaughey did not fit any description <laughs> ever given for uh, Dirk Pitt and Al Giordino. But at the same time, uh, two very bankable stars when the film came out. And of course, Penelope Cruz. And it's a ragtag uh, adventure through Africa, this go round. It's, if it's not Africa, it's the other place or the other place or the other place in these books. There's always a classic car. There's always Dirk's ingenuity in a in a sticky situation, and uh, the the movie. And I guess everyone is assuming that David and I are about to shit all over this thing, but the the movie is a roller coaster ride, much like the books are. Now, whether or not it's a, a successful roller coaster ride, let's allow the conversation to ensue. Uh, so do we want to synopsize it? I mean, that gives us like a background of who the characters are and like how, where the, um, the, yeah, good like, call. Like, like we know it's an adaptation now where the original mm -hmm. content came from, but basically the movie revolves around Dirk played by McConaughey and Al played by the, uh, criminally underrated Steve Zahn. Um, and they are treasure hunters of sorts. Uh, Dirk is convinced that there is a civil war ironclad ship somewhere in Africa. Uh, that's how the film opens is with, um, you know, like a cut, like a, a scene of, you know, this sh uh, ship in question or whatever. Um, and then from there, um, they run into this doctor from the World Health Organization, played by Penelope Cruz, and um, after finding a specific artifact, a, a gold uh, Confederate dollar, uh, only one of five supposedly ever to have been minted, um, they are going to head on out um, through through West Africa while the rest of the team that they normally work with, excavating different artifacts and stuff, goes on to Australia. And they take the doctor along, along with them, Eva Rojas, the the Penelope Cruz character, as I mentioned, and she's going to investigate a possible plague that is on its way to becoming a pandemic, very timely, um, as far as our coverage of this film goes. And then they are going to part ways at that point. But you know, um, something about fate and star-crossed lovers finding each other, or whatever. Um, insert insert literary reference there that I don't quite know. Um, they keep running into each other and then et cetera, you know, this whole mystery begins to unravel as they both try to either find the ship or uh, find the source of the health crisis taking place in Mali. And that is the movie. It is directed by Breck Eisner. Um, it's written by a whole ragtag group of folks. Um, and it, Believe it or not, has music by Clint Manziel. Uh, if you right. don't know him by name, he has scored um, films such as Requiem for a Dream. Uh, he has done other films. Uh, he did the Doom film, which is actually kind of funny. Uh, but he did The Wrestler. He's has a very storied history of collaborating with Darren Aronofsky. Um, Moon by Duncan Jones, David Bowie's son. Uh, great movie. Um, uh, podcast favorite, Sam Rockwell. Starring in that one, Black Swan, uh, Filth, uh, High Rise. I mean, the guy has a pretty solid resume of films that he has scored, a lot of which, you know, critical acclaim. And then there it is, 2005, Sahara. Right. Um, well, yeah, I, anyway. maybe, maybe we begin, Carlos, with... Uh, I'm not starting the conversation, David. Well, is. I was just gonna. Here's what I was gonna ask you. So maybe do it a little bit later. But you love this movie. You've told us you love this movie, <laughs> and I'm curious to know the occasion from which you. Because now it's a film analysis. We're deep, deep film analysis on Sahara. It's been woven through every episode. So 
where did you see it for the first time? How old were you? What was that experience, perhaps? Uh, it is. I don't know if we've mentioned it every episode, but I, I'll get back to that once we talk about the film. Okay. I don't want to be the one to kick it off. Okay, uh, David, do you want to kick it off? I, I'd be glad to. I want to hear. Sure, I'll... I want to hear David. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He came in hot <laughs> pre-recording, so did yeah. I? I? Not hot, did, but there was okay. a. Okay. There's a few sly comments made that has my interest really peaked. Okay. Well, okay. So, <laughs> so th this is a, an interesting one. I mean, I let, first of all, I'll just right, right off the bat say that I mostly enjoyed watching the film. Um, w what uh, what I what I mean by starting that way is that it was not a chore to watch. It was not a, such a badly put together film that I was losing interest or anything. It kept my interest. It kept my attention. Um, was this your first time, David? This was my first time. Okay. Yeah. And and I apologize because earlier I said I thought it was yours too, Joe, but it, but as you've clarified, you did see it. Mm -hmm. um, but no, this was the first time for me. I knew of it. I remember it when it came out. I remember the talk of it being uh, a failure. You know what I mean? And then reading up for this, you know, after watching the film, I was reading a little bit and I understand that, you know, the public squabbles between Kustler and the production uh, company and the uh, filmmakers and th that there was a public dispute going on that sort of tainted the waters, so to speak, for the film, right? It was already kind of set up to be a kind of failure because of that before it even got released. But I mean, I, I thought that this was generally a pretty watchable, fun action adventure film. Now, where I can't necessarily, and, and I'm going to be curious to hear more now that I've seen it and understand where Carlos is coming from better, where I can't go with it is it ha it hits all those problematic, tired tropes of action-adventure films in such a hard and on-the-nose way that I I really, that's what I struggled with is like, as much as I like Matthew McConaughey, and I do, believe me, I've, I've enjoyed myself some Matthew McConaughey over the years. Um, Steve Zahn, love Steve Zahn. Absolutely, I agree with Carlos, one of our most underrated actors. Whenever I see him show up and stuff, he always adds something to it. He's a great presence on the screen. Penelope Cruz, my God, how could I possibly say anything against Penelope? So like on-screen talent, you have Rain Wilson, William Macy. I mean, this is, this is a dream cast in many ways. However, it just falls into so many of those very predictable, this rogue adventurer from the United States who's just preternaturally adept at all things and understand and just I don't I don't buy the character at all. It's like I don't Indiana Jones is at least a little bit flawed in some ways. This character they build no flaws into. Dirk Pitt is just this like completely impervious specimen of humanity that I'm supposed to believe can never make a, a mistake and has encyclopedic knowledge of classic cars. And I, I just, all of it built up to such a point where I'm like, this is the American hero archetype that makes my stomach turn, makes me kind of nauseous when I start poking at it too much. Like I said, Indiana Jones, these days when I go back to it, it kind of has, it kind of feels some of that resonance there, but Harrison Ford and some of the character flaws help bring it back for me. This this film does not do they do not balance it. Um, even the the goofy friend is kind of perfect at everything too. I mean he's a little goofy and he has a funny sense of humor, but he's not really. I uh, lost my hat. I lost yeah. my hat. Yeah. Hi. Yeah. How are you? Yeah. I don't know. It just so so. I say all that to say like I enjoyed watching these people on the screen, these big budget uh, stunts and and uh, special effects that were going on. I totally would have not felt cheated in the theater for my $8 or whatever it would have cost at the time to sit in the air-conditioned room and, and watch this on the big screen. And I didn't feel cheated watching it at home, but I cannot see making this, putting this film on some kind of pedestal and saying it's something. I mean, from what I understand now of what Custler does with his books, I can imagine like the only Custler phase I would go into would be putting them into a big oil drum and setting them afire. <laughs> okay. <laughs> My thoughts begin with the – I pulled up Matthew McConaughey's Wikipedia page to start. Mm -hmm. We all, right, all, right, all right. The, th the three of us love Dazed and Confused, the movie that put him mm, on the map. That's not entirely accurate. Okay. Ooh. Most of us love Dazed now, and Confused. that's something we're going to have to revisit. 
and can and can certainly appreciate the film even even if it's not one of our favorites. Can I can I go that far? Yes. Then you see his career begin, like the trajectory of it, and you guys will remember that the thing that shot him into more uh, nationwide knowledge was a Time to Kill, nineteen ninety six. Yeah. In the same year was released Lone Star, a film that I'm really going to push to the top of our list as far as advocacy. But then he gets into this phase where Matthew McConaughey and his agents are trying to come up with what career are we going to make for this man. And uh, in 1999, Ed TV, you know, 2000, <laughs> U571. But then he gets into the two, early 2000s where... With the exception of Reign of Fire, 2002, a movie I oh. think is pretty great. Really? Uh, yeah, that, I like that. Isn't it kind of notoriously like, wasn't it like a failure? It, 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 at the box office, it may have been. I, but think it, it, I, I think it was one of those that wasn't like a huge success, but it didn't lose. Like, I don't think it was a notorious bomb. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. But don't the, know Joe either. likes it. Yeah. Okay. Well, I would, I would say early 2000s. Here we go. The Wedding Planner. 13 well, conversations. That was huge. 13 conversations about one thing, how to lose a guy in 10 days. Good movie. Yeah, two for the money. We're, we're getting into dude. where he's going to be. <laughs> no, that's, that's... Failure to launch, 2006. We're getting into, we're, we're typecasting ourselves at this point. Oh, yeah. Well, with the but, romantic comedies, yeah. Yeah, sure. but in the middle, it. right, but right before, here I go, Sahara, and if mm -hmm. you know anything about the production of this film, 2005, it's, we're trying to plug a megastar or a potential megastar into a new franchise. And at the end right. of this film, you can see they've set up their franchise. There's, they're funded. Mm -hmm. The government is, is going to allow them to go and do other jobs. But we don't have another Dirk Pitt film. Right. And I, I think it's because Matthew McConaughey at the time, th there was a, it would be a lot cooler if you did line put yeah. into the film. There I don't was, know it was really that. bad. There's a lot of just bad here, and, and there's a there is a silver lining. The cinematography is this weird high HD, at least on my television screen. It's really bright, is what it is. Like the really film is bright, really bright. But I could tell some artificial backgrounds, but we forgive that. That was 15 years ago. Um, but Carlos, I'll send it to you with the "Why do you love it so much?" I'll tell a story first. Aislinn sat down for the last 15 minutes. This is the critical climax where they're going to refurbish quickly a cannon in the Confederate ship that they have found in Africa where it doesn't belong. And Aislinn just goes, this is so bad. Okay, fast forward to the Matthew McConaughey in all of his shirtless glory and Penelope Cruz in a bikini as they meet on in Monterey as they suggested they might. And Aislinn goes, you know what? This movie's not that bad. <laughs> And I said, you know what? I kind of agree with you. It, it's a pretty movie filled with really obvious humor. But Carlos, if you if you can forgive the meat, the cute, the meat cute of Matthew McConaughey and Penelope Cruz, where these two people get to meet each other when he is, happens to be doing some spear fishing off of a inflatable off, off the coast of the lighthouse where she's looking for the a dead person or a potentially, you know, Oh, by the way, we failed to mention that there is a pandemic background to the film, which was interesting. We did not fail to mention that. Oh, you said that Carlos. Okay. Yeah. She, she's a, yeah, she, you did. She, she's a world health organization person on the heels of a potential pandemic. Okay. So there's a, these two people would never be in the same place together, but here they meet. And then if you forgive that, They've separated, but in all the places in Africa, I happen to be dropping into the well that you're stuck down at the bottom of. Carlos, the, the soccer ball that goes down the alley to the sketch that they need to pursue their mission. At some point, you just have to roll your eyes and go, this is a little bit bad. Or, or no, Carlos, is it? Are we, are we all wrong here? Yeah, I, I mean, I think so. Um, uh, first of all, I think it's funny that <laughs> uh, you guys think that I, like, really think this is a really good movie. <laughs> like, that you think that that's, like, a super sincere... Like, it's a bit, like... 
I don't. If you're I gonna don't, backtrack now with some bit bullshit, David well, no. and I are both gonna say no way. I don't. I don't remember how the first reference of it came up, but it did some for some reason, and I was like, oh, that's funny. Like I haven't thought about that movie in a really long time. And then within the month of that first reference, I was at my parents' house, um, and it was on TV. My dad was watching it. And I was like, oh, this is hilarious. Like, I was just, like, talking about this movie the other day, the movie nobody ever talks about. Um, and I watched it again, and I was like, yeah, this movie's pretty good. Uh, now, do I think it's great? Like, do I think it's this amazing, like, masterpiece of filmmaking? Like, God, no. But it's fun. And, like, all of the things you're talking about, like, um, the meet cute thing is, like, that's just that's just like a coincidence and that's like an inciting incident. Like you, even though it is like kind of far fetched or whatever chance meetings happen all the time. Like people that don't expect to run into each other do run into each other all the time. Now the heightened circumstances of this is kind of, you know, a little over the top or whatever, but it's an action movie. Everything's supposed to be over the top. Um, the, the world would be a lot cooler if whatever line that he gives is pretty cringy. I'll give you that. Like I, I, only in the last, like, I don't know, maybe like year or year and a half even have seen Dazed and Confused. So, you know, the first times that I would have seen that movie, that wouldn't have registered to me as like a reference or whatever. Um, and uh, what else? Um, the so, so they split up and then find each other again. And like, I also had that thought when I was watching it this morning in preparation for this recording. But also at the same time, like the thing that they're both chasing happen, like does coincidentally happen to be in a similar place, you know, like close to each other or whatever. So it's all just stuff that like the narrative doesn't function without these like set pieces. Like you have to have the soccer ball thing to move the story forward. Now, is anything about this movie intended to depict any sort of realism? Like, God, no. He takes a like 200-year-old like wreckage of an airplane and sails it across the desert like that is so stupid but it's so fun like it's like a you know it's an action adventure movie that is supposed to have the right beats it's supposed to hit the things it's supposed to hit and yes it is somewhat formulaic but it's fun like it's a fun entertaining popcorn thing you can have it on in the background and like lock into the scenes that you like and well, you know, like David said, great cast. Like, there's some good jokes, some good action sequences. I mean, that's really all that it needs to be. Yeah, it, it, it's funny. Like, you know, as you recount that, and and as I recount in my own mind some of the ridiculous, like that they actually bother to have this like strange kind of over the top and period inaccurate version of a civil war scene that opens the film up to kind of establish the importance of this ship that really does nothing to establish the importance of it being in Africa or why the F we would care yeah. about it. I mean, it's like, it was, I remember starting the film and I, I watched this with, uh, with the girls and, and, uh, you know, they're like, is this what this movie's going to be about? And I'm like, Oh no, don't worry. They're just doing some BS, uh, you know, historical opening to try to give it some weight. And it just felt so, I mean, from that to using classic rock throughout the film, I found that I so that. weird. <laughs> oh, classic it's... Southern rock. Yeah, it, it's this its this very Southern fried uh, rock uh, thing going on throughout. I don't know. It was, it was a weird, weird uh, mix of things. But there were moments, and in some of it, the absurdity of it, I can appreciate. I mean, like you say, the, him taking this, you know, whatever it is, uh, 80-year-old wreckage of some plane and suddenly resuscitating it and turning it into some kind of weird land cruiser that he can just sail through the desert. It's that insane. Has, David, it's, that, David, that has rubber tires that haven't disintegrated in well, Sahara. No, Sahara there heat. you go. Okay. There you go. Yeah. I mean, there's, Still got air there, there's a level at which, like, maybe it's it's okay that it's... Blow it's into those, Al. Yeah. It's, it, but it, it is crazy. But I hear you. I hear what Carlos is saying. Like, that... that you know, I think if I was in the right mood and if and if this film had hit me at the right time, I could see having more of a positive connection with it. I, I mean, honestly, I don't think I don't know. I do think poorly of it. I don't think badly of it. I don't think like this is something that I'm irritated by or angry about. Maybe maybe a little disappointed just because, like I said, I do have a lot of the people involved, uh, at least on screen talent. 
I have a lot of esteem for Breck Eisner. I don't know from anything. I haven't, I haven't seen really any of his other films. Uh, um, but anyway, it's, you know, it, it was, I'm not in given the place that it has as one of the sort of historical failures uh, of Hollywood to try to launch a franchise, something that was very much supposed to be, you know, as you can see, like sort of a Indiana Jones meets James Bond kind of that kind of series where this guy Dirk Pitt is going to get into a scrape and figure his way out and all that. But yeah, but it totally did not turn into that. And even though all the ingredients were there, right? Sorry, I only will say that the film stock went up for me in this viewing. I enjoyed it much more than I thought that I was going to. I haven't seen it since I haven't seen it since it came out, and it has this whiff about it. And when you when, you know, it's certainly on the show when we've busted Carlos's balls for liking it for as long as we have. But the 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 act the actors are likable. The action is interesting when it's interesting. And the the rest of it, the plot, the, the idea that we care much about these characters, we don't care about them enough to see the sequel, I don't think. I don't think there's enough on the screen in a 3D way to, to, to believe that we want more of this. I agree. At the same, at the same time, though, I was amazed at, at uh, Dirk Pitt, Matthew McConaughey's ability to put those sweet bandanas in his minimal pack that he was toting across the, the desert. He always had an amazing bandana to uh, contain his beautiful hair. Also, another way that you know that the movie is going to be good, or at least like worth watching, is that it opens with a shirtless McConaughey, and it closes with a shirtless McConaughey. I well, mean, use like, your assets. It's, book, it's bookended by everything that you need out of a McConaughey film, which is literally just to, for him to not wear a shirt at some point. Well, the the lady in the house that watched the last few minutes with me certainly concurs. Yeah, I mean, and I, you know, and I have to say, I I am a I am a little sad that we're doing this episode because I feel like <laughs> I feel like this puts like a punctuation mark on the bit of me trying to find a way to make even the most highly regarded and critically acclaimed films somehow come back around to being similar to Sahara in some way, shape or form. And, uh, it, it's a, I think it's an end of an era, David. I don't know. I think it's just an opening for you that you're going to have to be more, more creative, more ingenious in how you find ways to slide it in. Um, I, I don't know. I have, I have a feeling that we have not heard the last of Sahara. And also David, I'll say that, the encyclopedia of film available for Carlos to magnify something just as shitty in the future uh, is limitless. <laughs> that is accurate. Uh, I, I, and David, maybe you and I should do a little bit more of that. Maybe, maybe my new bit is uh, Joel Schumacher's 1997 Batman and Robin. Find a way Ooh. to bring well, everything back around to that steaming pile of crap. You're, you're probably going to hear me talking a little bit more about pure country from time to time. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, that's troubling that that is troubling <laughs> carlos um, it wasn't it wasn't as painful as i thought it was going to be so I, I honestly thank you for 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 all of your fine work prior to now yeah it's it's a it is it's fun like i think that you know if if you are the type of person that can free yourself of the shackles of you know, everything having to be of a certain quality or standard or uh, can can remove some of your more highbrow tendencies and just like shut your brain off for a second. Um, and sometimes you need to do that. Like sometimes, you know, that I don't come home every day from work when I was like leaving the house to go to work, wanting, you know, to watch like a kurosawa film or to right. watch like jean-luc godard or whatever like right i sometimes want to watch sahara or i sometimes just want to watch the same episodes of parks and rec you know and so like some <laughs> when you do find yourself in a situation where you're like i'm exhausted i just need to like veg out turn my brain off and just like put some like force like inject something into my life that is going to be like fun and carefree this is a great option Oh my God! What a hard day at work, honey. Turn on the seventh seal. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's uh that's not like a that's not a leisurely watch. <laughs> Sahara no, is, no. Uh, 
Yeah, yeah. I think again, if I if I had some more nostalgia built into it, I think I could probably get away with that too. Um, but uh, could I get away with with giving you this lazy magnolia, southern pecan, nut brown ale uh, when you come over the next time after quarantine lifts? Will I be able to get away with that? No. Whoa, <laughs> <laughs> well, whoa, whoa, day, whoa, 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 Carlos. Apply the same logic. We don't always need a. 13% double hopped dingleberry infused <laughs> IPA. What are you talking about? Every uh, once in a while, you just want a gift. I don't think you want a gift shop beer. Anything. You want a gift shop beer out of the uh, Mississippi airport. Yeah, I don't know. It tastes bad. <laughs> really? I, I, I don't know if I'd go to bad. I mean, I, to me, this is a, um, this is okay. This is, this is, for me, I kind of like the movie. This is a an inoffensive drinking experience that if I really probably start scrutinizing it, yes, I can find stuff to critique. But if I just kind of let it go and, and accept that it is going for like a middle of the road kind of palate uh, inoffensive flavor rather than something bold. And, and, you know, again, I feel like this is a beer that's probably – presentable to a lot of people who don't normally like drinking beer. You know what I mean? Like where, hey, do you like things that are kind of roasty and chocolatey and nutty? And the, okay, well, yeah, you could try this. And th this is pretty light. It's only four and a half percent. You can have a little little drink of this. I, I don't think I'd ever order it again. But I mean, I don't think it's badly made. It's just not my flavor profile. Yeah, yeah, I agree exa exactly with you, David. It's not bad, but it's not something I'm going to seek out a lot. You know, I called it a gift shop beer. I, it, the idea that in our small town, there is one Mississippi beer in our best beer store, which means that it has risen to a level of production and distribution. I go to their uh, information. They've been around since 2003, 2004, which means they've had the time to get there. I'm sure they have a very, very, very popular tap room but it, it it's not a beer that bowls you over by any stretch of the imagination. It's doing good business in Mississippi. Yeah, I, I, I don't like pecan in general. So like this was kind of you know set up to set up for failure for me from the beginning. I'm um, with you. Yeah, I, yeah. I don't know. Just not not a huge fan of it. Um, I I think it tastes bad because I don't like. I think pecans taste bad. So anything that's like pecan adjacent to me is going to be bad does that mean that it's like that they're bad at making beer like no that's not what i'm saying at all i just uh i'm sure that they have other offerings that are just just fine and dandy and that i would probably like them as much as y'all like this one but for me this one is uh not doing which is why when david said can i get away with giving this to you like you know, come over after quarantine and that's why i said no i'll just be like yeah take i look forward to the day are instead I look forward to the days where all 50 states are ticked off the list and we can say, was that Mississippi offering the proper way to look into Mississippi craft beer? Let's go a little deeper. But yeah. um, but for, for today, this movie and beer were probably a perfect pairing in some way. Yeah. I, I have a feeling that uh, we'll have some more Mississippi beer in the future and maybe even... Uh, some more lazy magnolia. I bet they have stuff uh, that that goes sure. off in different directions. It would be fun to try something else from them. There were a couple of styles available. I went with this one for reasons I can't explain. <laughs> <laughs> which uh, which does fit the film too. So all right, uh, we're, we're going to take a little break uh, as we always do, and when we come back, we're going to get another beer into our glasses and talk about another film that is a notorious bomb of sorts, um, and one that actually you know we'll talk about how we got there. But I wanted to revisit.
right, so we're going to get this second half of the episode kicked off with, with the beer in the glasses. We, we've done a good job, I think, the past couple episodes. We're trying to get beer into the glass at the beginning of these segments rather than uh, doing these extended kind of introductions. Uh, so right now we're going to open up a beer that another beer that's going to bring us to a new state. This is coming out of Oskaloosa, Iowa. The beer company is called No Coast, which makes sense if you're in Iowa. There is no coast there. Um, and this is their Yoga Poser Pale Ale. Um, the can also says the new age of beer. I don't know if it's that that's a general slogan or if that's associated with, with this particular beer. It's a 6%. And uh, let's go ahead and get this in our glasses. Yeah, and I picked it up at the uh, liquor store again on that same trek, looking for states that we've never been to. And uh, they, the, our guys had plenty of uh, styles, and this has really interesting, uh, eye-catching can art. Uh, I you guys getting a lot of head on this? My yeah. uh, Mine exploded. Ooh, so I okay, yeah. My, I don't know what you guys just said because I got up to grab a towel. <laughs> Um, I could have given you their amber ale. I could have given, yeah, I could have given you, I was looking at, you know, you know me, I'm going to go for the IPA first, but, uh, like I said, they had four or five styles. I liked the idea of a pale ale because that's a style we haven't explored too often on the show. No, that's true. Um, but yeah, this, I mean, it is pale in color. It's a little cloudy, but not a little cloudy. Not not super hazy. And you're um, right. Mine was carbonated too when I nice, opened it up. Nice nose on it, but yeah, the head was extreme. I mean, when when I poured that, I'm glad I had the glass ready because it needed some space to breathe. Um, if if I think with Carlos, once you crack the can open, you got to get this thing into a glass. It's our first trip to Iowa. It's our first trip to uh, many elements of the film that we're about to watch. But you guys, you already know what we're about to watch, but what we're about to discuss, but um, you'll remember last week, David, uh, Carlos got to pick quote unquote Sahara, but you and I were able to pick the companion. So we had an offline conversation to come up with the film, the perfect film to discuss with Sahara this week. Right. And, and we were talking about, you know, action adventure is a possibility and you know joe kind of you teased it, um, you know, on, on Facebook and, and whatnot with pictures of, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, saying that, you know, this could be a companion. It could be. I mean, th as I referenced in the first half of the episode, Sahara was clearly a film that was trying to do something akin to the Indiana Jones franchise. In modern uh, day. In modern day, right. The You know, the problem with doing that is I think we knew going into it that it would be kind of weird to set it up that, you know, that we're, we're judging this film that was sort of a notorious failure against something that was a notorious success in that. And that's where, you know, my head kind of went to, well, let, let's look at another notorious failure. We actually did an episode a long time ago uh, about box office bombs. We looked at Hudson Hawk. We looked at a couple other, you know, kind of idea that, okay, these films that have no, been notoriously dragged through the mud by the critical press and met with disinterest at the box office for, from audiences, that it's worth perhaps looking at them and evaluating them and seeing if they are if there's anything redeemable there. Um, so we, we picked the movie Ishtar, uh, which I threw out there because it was a film that I know was a notorious bomb that I remember seeing parts of over the years. I believe this was one, it was actually co-funded by, or, or it was backed by money from HBO. So it was going to be on HBO. And I definitely remember in the, you know, late eighties after this had come out, it being on HBO kind of regularly and seeing very, parts of it, especially the New York stuff, the, the early stuff in the film. But I don't know that I had ever sat down and actually watched it the whole way through when there were so many people involved in this film who I had great respect for, right? I mean, going back to the you know first half with Sahara, I mean, all the, all the cast in there are people who I hold in high esteem. Uh, similarly here, you know, Warren Beatty, a, a, an absolute sort of Hollywood icon yeah. and who's done great things over the years, you know, all the way from, you know, Splendor in the gla the Grass, Bonnie and Clyde. Dick Tracy. through Bullworth. And yeah, well, th there you go. That might be our new Sahara. Maybe we'll go there. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyhow, you know, the, the, this storied Hollywood icon, Dustin Hoffman, you know, so many films we could name with him, but The Graduate, you know, Prime 
among them. Uh, meet the so, Fockers. Well, outbreak. <laughs> meet the Fockers. Well, wait. Is he in Meet the Fockers? He's in Meet the Fockers, he is, right? He is the, the head Fokker. He is the Fokker, right? Okay. Yeah. Uh, so anyhow, you, you have these. And also uh, behind the camera, Elaine May is, is sort of like, again, this legend of comedy and, uh, and film to some extent has made some highly regarded films, certainly in the screenwriting department. And this was a project that was made for her that was sort of or, – or she was allowed the creative uh, room to make it with the, the star power of Warren Beatty. So anyway, there are all these things that I knew about this film that made me curious about it. Like, well, why was it so bad? And why would it, or was it so bad? And why was it received so poorly? Um, can You're I right. find something there? And I have to say, I'm not going to lead off this one in terms of my opinion on it. I'm going to let one of you guys do that. <laughs> Well, I'll go. I'll go quickly. Uh, you're right, David. I sat down thinking, why was this a bomb? You do have your Warren Beatty and your Dustin Hoffman together. Finally, you know, the idea in 1987 of putting together two big stars, and and I get. I think that it is just the the lumbering, foreign for an audience, foreign plot that just turned people off to this. Uh, the idea of two failed lounge singers that are, you know, going after a Simon and Garfunkel kind of career with those, <laughs> with those two stars, it, there's an idea there. If you know, in the conference room where we're going to put the film together, there is a good idea there. I just think it's plot gone wild. I mean, I think that the biggest problem with the film is that it kind of ha it either. You can interpret it one of two ways. Either it doesn't really have a very good plot, strong plot, or it has two different plots that it can't decide on. Um, I started watching this movie um, possibly too inebriated and fell, <laughs> and fell asleep promptly only to wake up at like one in the morning to, to watch it uh, like one or one thirty And, um, and I, and I, at such a late hour, one I'm not usually like awake at, I you know, watch the whole thing and there are, there are points where it starts to kind of hit its stride and like stretch its legs a little bit and kind of like, you know, things start picking up. It gets interesting for like 20 minutes and then it ends <laughs> and that's about it. And the, the, I think the most baffling thing about it to me is that like, it spends a really long time with them in New York being the setup. The, the set, well, the setup of them being like, you know, not great slash failing like songwriters or lounge acts or whatever. And all of that exposition, most of it, you could just copy and paste it to the Shea Casablanca and seeing them perform in that setting will give us everything we need to know about their talent level and about the likelihood of them being successful. So really all you need to do, it doesn't really matter how they met like to the story. All that you need to do is like, like show them trying to ride together and then have Dustin Hoffman's girlfriend walk out on him. Uh, and then the scene where, you know, he's whatever, actually I take that back. You really don't even need that scene. It didn't do a lot for us. Um, but all you have to do is just have them finally like play a couple of bad shows, get a manager involved and then, you know, head on out. And, um, and then we can get to the, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Ishtar is not a country, right? Not a real country, okay. but one invented In for this film. Yeah, yes. exactly. Yeah. Ishtar is actually, um, like a, god i think of some yeah. sort um it is a mesopotamian goddess closely associated with love and war uh fitting um and then so okay so once they get to the fictional country of ishtar there's like this map in play and they're like set up to be these perceived messengers and there's like a woman right. who's like trying who's a quote-unquote communist trying to free the whole thing and that's the interesting part of the movie but it lasts for like no time at all yeah i mean th this is an interesting film from a, for a lot of reasons and i got a lot out of watching this uh now the whole way through 
Um, and, and I and I actually I was happy to hear Carlos say that, you know, like it hits its stride at certain moments. There are scenes in there that really kind of work, especially as a comedy team. I mean, we haven't really laid out the plot here. We've kind of hinted around it. We've talked about it. But it's basically the setup is you have these two guys who are failing songwriters who take a gig out in the Middle East um, out of desperation, essentially. It's offered to them by, by somebody who, you know, they asked to represent them. And they go out there and they end up getting sort of mixed up, mistaken for being better operators than they are, or used as pawns by people in this sort of political intrigue going on in the Middle East, and in, in this fictional Middle East nation of, uh, of Ishtar. So, you know, that's the basic premise. It was supposed to be this kind of comedy duo film, like, you know, specifically referenced, if you read about it, uh, you know, Hope and Crosby, they, they had these films, The Road to, Road to Singapore, Road to Zanzibar, Road to Morocco, Road to you. And it was the idea of these two kind of mismatched guys or these, these two kind of ne'er-do-well guys who are just going to get into scrape after scrape after scrape. And every scene is going to be kind of an excuse to put them in some kind of comic situation. I mean, you could also, you know, point to Abbott and Costello, Laurel and Hardy. I mean, like this idea of these two guys who one of them may be attractive and, and although here they kind of flip it and Warren Beatty, who was thought of as the kind of leading man, uh, traditionally sort of attractive guy plays the loser who, who supposedly doesn't do well with women. Yeah. And then, you know, Dustin Hoffman though, plays the more suave, the Bing Crosby type character here who is, and Warren Beatty plays it really well, actually. He does. He's, I mean, he is funny because the, the weird thing is, is that, you know, you look at him and you're like, OK, this guy's handsome. He, he can he obviously has had um, no problem in his other films playing these very attractive characters. And yet just by kind of carrying himself a little differently, he comes off as kind of a strangely, uh, you know, I don't know, like gangly kind of strange guy. He, he, he even talks about how, you know, Dustin Hoffman being smaller is kind of ideal, like small people can move. So I don't know. It's 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 a funny thing that he actually pulls off pretty well. And it was a funny concept, I think, to have them reversed from what you would typically think of based on how they come across typically on screen. Um, and, you know, adding into that, you know, lots of funny little sequences. I actually think the bad songs that they write are pretty fucking great bad yeah. songs. And that was all Paul Williams, who I love. I mean, he he's one of those sort of uh, underappreciated heroes. Although Daft Punk definitely gave him a, a big shout out on their uh, on their last record there with it with a track with him. Um, but you know, th- this guy who who uh, you know wrote Rainbow Connection, one of the greatest movie songs of all time, and uh, the, and there he is, you know, kind of doing these songs that feel almost good enough to be songs, but are just you know obviously off just enough to feel bad and and that doesn't i don't know so there's lots of things i like about what this movie does however i do agree like the pacing of it it gets a little bogged down it can't quite decide if it wants to get into serious intrigue with the political kind of plotting that's going on or if it's just a backdrop for them to be mistaken as things that they aren't and put them into situations once it gets down to them in the desert towards the end like carlos was talking about I think it's hilarious, like watching them play off each other, Dustin Hoffman breaking down and crying about how he's, you know, doesn't have a family and, you know, and and Warren Beatty kind of building him back up like, oh, you know, but at least we're out here doing it. I don't know. There was a funny chemistry there. I think that this could have been a pretty great film. I think it's probably a mediocre film, but one that was hindered significantly by the idea that they had put all this money, this star power, all of this into it. And again, that that seemed similar to Sahara. What undid this film was not so much that it was true a unpleasant to watch film, but that it was a film that should have been on some level a, an, a, an excellent film, an outstanding film. Go ahead. I mean, there's too many filmmake, too many good filmmakers in the room to make a total piece of garbage. I mean, there are many positive elements to this movie. And you can tell that the uh, creators of the film and the actors in it, I mean, have some opinion about the um, how the word Ishtar is now synonymous with bomb. Uh, Dustin Hoffman is uh, quoted as saying, I like the movie and just about everyone that makes a face when the name of the movie is brought up has not seen it. Elaine May, who wrote and directed, said, if all the people who hate Ishtar had seen it, I would be a very rich woman today. So I think that I the disagree. word of mouth, 
I think about well, her point being that it its rep its reputation proceed, precedes it now as being this worst film of all time or worst bomb of all time, and now the uneducated, meaning those who haven't seen the movie, can pronounce that without making their own judgment. So good on us for watching it and being able to uh, discuss it today educatedly. Well, so I, okay, so I, as I just said, I do disagree with that theory that people who saw it would um, think differently or whatever, because it's not, because like, it's not good. And not only is it not good, but it's almost really good. And the fact that it gets so close to being interesting makes it worse because like, yeah, they, failed, failed opportunity. So, so, so as I said, I drunkenly fell asleep, like at the pretty early on, I probably got like 15 minutes in and then Kylie watched another 10 or 15 minutes and got bored and turned it off and turned on like, you know, one of those trash reality Netflix love shows or whatever, which is actually just riveting stuff <laughs> as far they, as they are all, they are all the rage now as they far are, as like the human experience is concerned yeah. and people's you know human behavior what it's absolutely baffling um but anyhow uh so even somebody who is like sitting there in front of it already is just like there's nothing really here for me because there's not in the first like 30 minutes like nothing really that interesting happens. They try to make things interesting happen, like having Dustin Hoffman out on a ledge or having their respective significant others leave, which like also criminal, if you ask me, because you've got Carol Kane there and then you mm -hmm. dispose of her like pretty early in the film, which is an absolute shame. But anyway, uh, it would have been more interesting, I think, from like a narrative perspective, if they still had significant others at home while they were in like that would create another source of tension and conflict, especially when this beautiful woman comes up to Dustin Hoffman in the airport. I mean, there's just so many missed opportunities. And to my recollection, and I, you know, like I said, I watched this very late at night and I didn't like doze off or fall asleep. I was like, well, I was attentively watching the entire time and I don't really understand the map. Like, I don't get it. Like they, I feel like it's not really explained. And then, well, there's that scene early on where the, the two guys are going over the map and they say like, you know, in these two messengers are going to come in and blah, blah. basically it's just setting the stage that this is like this long lost map that sort of has a prophecy attached to it that, but what's the prophecy? The prophecy is that there are going to be two messengers who kind of unseat whoever's in power. So that's why the guy who's in power, who the, the leader of Ishtar is, you know, sort of desperate to squelch the map, get rid of it, because if it gets brought to the attention of the public in a way, he thinks that it may make people think that these two guys who've come into the country as messengers are going to kind of unseat him and and sort of, you know, take over, but, essentially. But, how does, power but, the, but that's not a map. That's like a, a cave painting. It's a prophecy. It's a, I mean, it, it, it's, it's they, like a written... They call it a map, like it's supposed to lead to something. Well, no, and, that's and so I mean, yeah. and so and so also the idea that, that it, kind of the idea that it's called a map and the idea that like it being found is important suggests that there is some information contained therein that is important and is going to have some kind of effect because everyone seems to know that there's like a prophecy and there's this map that tells of it. Right. But if that's all that it is, is just oh yeah, these two people are going to show up and it's going to be this whole thing, then like you don't need the map. Everybody knows it already. So like the importance well, of the actual think... document itself isn't, it's even if it is, exp even if it is explained by only a few people know about it and like sure. whatever, it's not, it's not enough to draw, to create as much conflict as it does. And I, I don't disagree with that. And I want to see that. I want to see those characters getting into those hijinks more. Yeah, like I think it's. I think it's. That's where it's. It's more of a, um, you know, a send up in a way. It's. It's those road two films. They weren't supposed to be like earnest, um, political intrigue and adventure kind of films. They were about like these two guys who really don't fit in this scenario you know muddling their way through it and that's that's what they're trying to set up but you're right i mean like this is there's no way that this film stands up as like 
a real which is where i say it gets bogged down a little bit where it starts taking itself a little bit too seriously i think in certain scenes um to some extent i think you know uh, isabella johnny who who plays the you know that kind of character who who pulls them most into it by you know essentially uh you know first getting Dustin Hoffman's passport and then, you know, uh, contacting the Warren Beatty character. I mean, all of that that goes on, it, it, it doesn't feel necessary. And that, you know, reading up a little bit on the film, he, she was, uh, Dust, uh, not Dustin Hoffman, Warren Beatty's, uh, girlfriend at the time. And, and he okay. seemed to like attach her to the project and put her and. I think that's probably some of the pull there, honestly. If I'm and apparently that was part of the tension after in post production when they were editing the film that um, he wanted her think, in it as much as possible. Yes, yeah. right. But it, she's a it, good it, character. Like that no, character has has potential to really but, add to the story. But they didn't really use her that way. They didn't it's, use well, her yeah. as like a good comic foil for them. They used her as like this thing that's supposed to be driving the plot forward but there really shouldn't be a heavy plot here it should just be about these guys bumbling and fumbling and and yeah. not yeah i think i think that i think that that is i think what we just arrived at now in regards to her character is something that can be applied to the entirety of the film as a whole and it's that there is so much potential here and there are pieces in place where they need to be, but they're not being used the way that they need to be used. It's like if you're playing a game of chess and your first move is to try to see how far across the board you can take a single pawn. Like that's not what the pawn is for, you know, like sure. Like it's there and you're doing something with it, but what you're doing with it is not serving its uh, high, um, highest potential or whatever. Joe, you're going to say something. Well, I was just going to say that, yeah, you're absolutely right. If the film was them fumbling and bumbling and the pro the plot being created around them with them unaware, that might have been a direction. That great movie. It would have been a great movie. Yeah, we, we'll, we'll never know. Um, I know. I will say <laughs> – <laughs> I'm saying it right now. I know that would have been a good movie. The part the, where they, uh, the part where they get into like the like arms deal or whatever. Granted, the actual arms deal part of it, like there's some problematic elements to that, and also it's kind of very unbelievable, which I can suspend my disbelief in that moment. But like CIA's coming after them, and they're sitting there, and they just have all these guns, and like they're like, well, I guess we have to do something about it. Like that scene is probably the most fun that the movie ever generates you know and so those types of things if that was the core ethos of the film is what happens in that scene the energy of that the like you know situation and them being totally out of their element but having to improvise like that's where it really is at its best but it largely ignores that te that tendency or that like instinct throughout most of the film I wanted to say two things before we moved too much further or we get into the beer, and that is we need to give some mad props to Dana Gonzalez on our Facebook page who originally uh, suggested that we do Ishtar as a companion. And uh, Shouts out to uh, Dana. Yeah, David, I think that's where we got the original idea. And then after we – let's do desert movies. How, how about Lawrence of Arabia? <laughs> mm. I was like, no, let's go, let's, let's go back to the whole bomb thing. And secondly, um, interestingly, Sahara has a Rotten Tomato review uh, number of 38%. Ishtar has a Rotten Tomato number of 38%. Wow. Look I thought that, that was kind of cool. Spirits. Well, so maybe we are doing perfect pairing now. <laughs> so it's 38 in a row. Yeah, I, so th this was fun. I, I liked revisiting, uh, or sorry, revisiting one film or seeing it in the, in total, and then seeing a film that I had been meaning to see. Th this is this is what uh, quarantine catch up is all about. Um, <laughs> what about this yoga poser beer that that uh, we've been sipping on in this second half of the episode? I'm gonna say solid as hell. Really? I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say this is a uh, very. Uh, attractive simple pale ale i'm enjoying it very much to me i i don't know i'm not i'm not as i'm not as up on this one i think it for my palate it's a little too malty um it's just a little like i don't know it, it it's uh it's sweeter than i want it to be somehow i kind of want it to dry out a little bit i i, I see that I, and i know that um 
you know, I don't think it's bad. I just think if I want a pale ale, I tend to want something that's a little lighter, a little less. Like, it's hard for me to get through 16 ounces of this. I can see that. That's I'm, interesting. Yeah. For me personally, I would have flip-flopped these two as far as the movies that they went with. Uh, because for me, kind of like what you guys said about the Southern Pecan Porter, it's like not an offensive drinking experience. It's light and easy to get through and whatever. And not that this is light, but this is a... It's not a like standout, amazing, like knock my socks off pale ale, but it's certainly not bad. And I'm certainly enjoying I've actually, spoiler alert, I actually have had this before. I, for the same reason Joe picked it up, I picked it up, uh, God, it was probably maybe even almost a year ago. Um, or somewhere within there, I saw the can. I was like, oh, that looks fun. I'll pick it up. And uh, I drank the four pack. I, you know, I, I enjoyed it reasonably well. It's old, right? 2018, right? Oh yeah, I just realized that. Holy shit! This oh, the weird. stamp on the can it's says 2018. Yeah, that's okay. That explains a lot. I yeah. think honestly, if if I was having this fresher, I think it would be. I know it would be a totally different beer. There there would be yeah. a lot more balance there. It's. I think that's what it is. It's just there is. You know, there is some hop character, but it's all just kind of the bitterness that's buried in there. I'm not getting any of the more lively kind of uh, aromatics and, and juicier elements that might come in. As I, I have a feeling that this beer a year and a half ago was quite good. But even even it being as old as it is, I I don't find it to be like bad or offensive. No, well, or, I, I, I still I still am enjoying it. Um you said something about it being a little sweeter that doesn't affect me as much. Um oh, good. I kinda like it even um it's not something I'm going to just toss back or like just be pounding a, a sixer of, but you know, right. it's a nice like slow sipper over the, you know, next like half hour or so I'll probably be done with it and have enjoyed myself. Um, but yeah, over, but yeah, so I would have switched them because my experience of drinking them more directly reflects my experience of watching the films associated. This one is more of just like a fun, easy, let's go like Sahara, whatever. And then the Southern pecan, because I really am an anti pecan or pecan. If you're a real Southern, uh, advocate, um, the Ishtar situation was more of just like, man, this could have been good. Like that beer probably could have been good. Sans pecan, there are plenty of things that Ishtar could have done to have been better, um, which really is, you know, I got to say, and we've had these conversations before, more specifically um, in regards to the work of Ari Aster. Shouts out, Kyle. I'm a fellow Ari Aster hater. Um, and <laughs> for me, the most disappointing film or movie watching experiences are always when there's a lot of potential that's squandered. And I feel yeah. like with Ishtar, there's a lot of potential squandered. Uh, and so it's, you know, it's, a, it's upsetting and I wish that I could see the good version of the movie, but if I want to see a great, a great Warren Beatty film, I'll just watch Dick Tracy. <laughs> Well, th th there you go. That's that's what you're going to have to do. So uh, I, I think uh, it, th this has been a fun episode. I've enjoyed it. It was it was great to have a you know good excuse to kind of revisit these films that, uh, you know, when when uh, the rhythms of life are what they are normally that I don't get the chance to drop back in on or to to focus on. So I'm, I'm glad I got that opportunity. And I'm really excited for for some upcoming weeks. I think we have some themes coming that uh, that could be fun for our listeners. Though I think next week, have we arrived on that we're going to finally tackle the hunt? No, we haven't. Oh, no, is that what, is, is that what we want to do? I would like to. I'm just I want to let our listeners know. All right. Well, I mean, and of course, I don't think we've picked a companion film. So by the time no, this we'll get that out there. But but yeah. I, but at the very least, we're going to look at the hunt. Finally, we've been teasing that for a while and uh, we're, we're going to get around to that and, and we'll find a good companion. It won't be the most dangerous game, even though that would make sense. Yeah, it makes me it, it yeah. makes me happy to visit a recent release. It really does. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And maybe we even kind of get the listeners involved on the companion a little bit. Uh, yeah, well, that's what I was. That, that, yeah, yeah that that's, seemed, that's where I was going earlier. Yeah, that seems nice. to be uh, seems to be going pretty well these last couple and, of times. And just uh, last week, I talked about the curriculum for my daughter here, stay at home. We're right, watching right. movies. 
David, you helped me round out that uh, curriculum. We watched Singing in the Rain and Lost in Translation since the last time we recorded. Both Lost in Translation holds up so well. And uh, Singing in the Rain, I can't think of a movie that just... I had a smile glued onto my face the entire time that you watched that film. It is, mm. su- it is such a joyous, f- colorful, beautiful, great performances. Singing in the Rain is, is such a fun film. If you're looking for things to just pick up quickly on Amazon Prime or wherever you're watching movies, I'm going to suggest it. Yeah, it's good. Um what do you think about these movies that we have uh, discussed today? We'd like you to let us know. You can find us on Twitter at Beer Movie Show, Instagram at Beer and a Movie, Facebook.com slash Beer and a Movie TX. Uh, one of our regular listeners, Emily, was coming down real hard on Sahara in the Facebook comments uh, <laughs> uh, prior to our recording of this episode. Beer and a Movie Podcast.com is our home base. There's a link to listen to all of our past episodes. Uh, they're Emily absolutely too. free. Um, if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, rate, review, and subscribe. That helps us out a great deal. We know you're going to give us a five-star rating, but please leave a written review. Tell us what you like, what you don't like, what you want to see more of in the future, all that good stuff. Um, but this has been another uh, quarantined episode of uh, Beer in a Movie, so I think that there's only one thing to do. We're going to pull a Panama. <laughs>